Hello, I'm Jackie Mignot. And I'm Zach Robichaud. You're listening to A Podcast Made Flesh. Conversations about an embodied faith. We're coming to you from Treaty 7 territory, talking with all sorts of people about the Incarnation. We're not reporters or experts, but we are questioners, and we are on a quest to have a conversation about the central Christian belief that God became flesh. It it means the least of these are on our mind. Those in the margins are on our hearts. It means that I'm caring for my brother and my sister. It means that I am, I love, that I am, you know, that I am tender. Those are all the attributes that we should have when, especially when we are in times of trouble. That's not what I'm seeing. Well, welcome, Podcast Made Flesh listeners. This week's episode, we are talking to Heather Bensler, who is a nurse and an educator, and she's kind of been on the front lines of public health education about COVID and uh, the vaccines. And we kind of wanted to talk to her about that role, but also how she understands her faith in a public health role, especially in times like these when public health is is front and center. Um, yeah, and wanted to, we wanted to talk about the vaccine and the responses to that and kind of all of that. Yeah, the analogy of the body mm. as a group of people, the public, and then trying to maintain the health of that body mm. is just uh, kind of slaps you in the face. And I don't think we actually state it explicitly in our in our conversation because I think it's just understood. Um, and then looking at those elements within that body that are like a pathogen mm. and that pathogen is ignorance or that pathogen is distrust and that pathogen is disregard for your neighbor. Mm. Um, so anyway, I just loved hearing what Heather had to say yeah. about um, caring for that body. Yeah, I, I did too. One of the things I've been thinking about since we chatted with her was how fraught this conversation is and the, the emotions go high and, and in no way do we want to um, make anyone feel like if they're, you know, uh, have a lot of questions about the vaccine that they can't right. have questions. Of course you can have those questions and the grace for each other um, and not assuming bad motives about anyone who has a different opinion. That's really important, I think, to say, but then we also really did want to um, kind of pull some things out into the light and wonder about them. Um, and hold yeah. that. So, so hold the conversation in that grace, but we also hope that there's uh, some good information and insight that you might not have heard from if you're not in the public health world. Uh, so we hope you enjoy it. My name is Heather Bensler and I am a nurse. I also happen to be a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus. I, um, as far as my nursing background, I've actually been a nurse for 25 years. And in that, um, I uh, have worked in obstetrics. So that's helping to deliver babies. Um, I've worked as a medical missionary in Peru, Ecuador, and a little bit in Brazil. And um, I have also taught at the university 
So I am tenure track faculty at University of Calgary in the Faculty of Nursing. And I teach basically public health there. Um, I, my area of research is anti-Indigenous racism in healthcare and white settler identity and looking at ways that we can interrogate our identity um, and particularly looking at white, at looking at whiteness. Um, but I have since COVID started, I, I volunteered to go back to the hospital to work, um, to help. Um, my husband is a physician, so I get to really see kind of COVID up close. Um, but the role that I've taken, because that wasn't necessary, is to really be on the front lines of COVID um, education. So if that's actually teaching healthcare workers about COVID and um, the vaccines, or um, I work with a group called 19 to Zero, and we're a coalition of 500 healthcare practitioners who help to bring good information out to people. So, right. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's good. You know some stuff then. All right. Some stuff. We like talking to people who know more than we do. We do. <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry, Heather, what was the name of the organization? You said 500? Um... 19 to zero. So it's the number 19 and then T-O zero, trying to get okay. from COVID-19 to zero. Right. Yeah. Great. And that's 500 yeah. medical professionals. Yeah. And it's led by um, who now the former medical officer of health for Calgary, Dr. Zha Hu. Right. I work with Doctor Who. Doctor Who. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> I, I so you're, that. oh yeah, you can't say Nurse Who, right? Is that? No, but I'm going to be Doctor Nurse soon because I am actually working on my doctorate right now, and so that's I'm and doing that parallel to the same time as being on faculty. And that's with the anti-racism towards Indigenous people. That's your area of focus, your area of study. Mm-hmm. That is. And so are your studies on pause? Have they been on pause then since the outbreak? Well, um, no, but um, I've had to shift what I'm doing from being very, actually, I love to do those kind of embodied activities where I get students really to live through things like similar to the blanket exercise, but with COVID, that's not possible. Um, So I'm actually using an Indigenous methodology called Indigenous Métissage to look at my settler education and the ways society has taught me to not see Indigenous people and to not interrogate my white identity. And so I'm looking at stories from my family coming from Europe to Canada um, and looking at what was going on historically, what was going on as far as just telling that story. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also looking at some of my childhood experiences that taught me Um, to really not be aware of the complexities of Canadian history. And um, and my grandparents both actually worked at a residential school and we were never told. And I have two brothers who are 60 scoop survivors and it was never framed that way. It was always just adopted brothers. So, yeah. Wow. I did not expect to be talking about this. Uh, well, that's our other podcast, so you can edit all of that out. But that's no, just, no, we'll, <laughs> no, no, we're keeping this. Okay. I, I'm, I mean, this is, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love the way you framed the, the research there is like kind of seeing how we've been blind. And so it's really like in like a unblindness operation. And 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, we should probably talk about COVID-19 and how we get people to believe that it's a real thing and that it's <laughs> dangerous and all of that. So let me ask a stupid question. Yep. If, uh, I mean, the mortality rate on this thing is like 1% in Alberta. So when I drive down the highway, um, like there's a chance I could get, I could die in a car accident. So how is this uh, that much worse than just getting in the car and driving down the highway? Well, almost Dr. Bensler. Yeah. Well, what's a little bit different with COVID right now is this is everybody working their best to make us not get COVID. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine um, in a normal year, we'd have a few thousand people who would get influenza, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've had zero cases of influenza. Mm. Influenza normally kills, and I don't have the stats with me right now. I didn't pull them up, but normally kills, uh, especially elderly people and the most vulnerable. So mm-hmm. the public health measures that we've put in place have taken us from thousands of cases to zero. Mm. But so we know that COVID is significantly more infectious. Um, yes, it is, uh, it's going to end up leveling out at about just under 2%. Yeah. But death is not the only thing that COVID can do. One death is means that somebody has been very sick, and they've needed to be in our hospital. And we know that with COVID, it has increased the number of people who have had to use the resources in our hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a terrible way to go. Um, so we know that. But actually, between 10 to 30% of people have lasting effects of COVID. And that's one of our biggest challenges is we often will say, um, oh, it's mild. But what does mild mean? Mild from a public health perspective, and I think we'll go back to define what that is in a minute. um, Mild means you didn't need to go to the hospital. It doesn't mean that you are not going to have a terrible illness and have lasting damage. Um, One of the tricky things with COVID-19 is how it impacts your body and the number of organs that it impacts your body. And that mild infection, let's say, Zoc, if you have teenagers, let's say, and they get it, and you're Mm -hmm. like, well, it wasn't that bad, but they can actually end up having lasting damage to their hearts, their lungs, and and other organs with still having mild disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's very unpredictable. Um, it impacts many, many systems. Um, and yeah, 10% of people we know will have lasting damage and up to 30% will have lasting effects. So if that's foggy brain, inability to walk around the block, um, um, heart failure. So we have had right now with the, the current, what we call variants of concern, Um, We're seeing um, increased infections in pregnancy. We see a pregnant woman who has COVID-19 with these current variants has a 22% increased chance of dying Mm. while pregnant. We're seeing repeat infections in COVID-19. So from an obstetrics perspective, that's kind of my love is having babies. And Mm -hmm. I think in our society, we tend to care about women and pregnant women and babies. Um, and we are seeing the effects after delivery of um, 
where we know those babies aren't getting proper nutrition and, and oxygenation mm-hmm. due to COVID. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very serious. So we don't really know the effects on, on the newborns yet. Well, we're yeah. seeing, we're seeing our, in Alberta. So I'm just going to give you some stats so you can kind Please. of compare. Yes. I love so, numbers. Yeah. N- normally, uh, we actually have a really high rate of premature birth in Alberta. Our normal rate in Alberta is 8%, which is the highest in the country. We don't actually know why. Right now with COVID-19, we're at 13 to 14%. So that's 13 to 14%. And we're delivering at 32 to 34 weeks. So those babies need to go to the ICU. Oh, man. So we're going from 8% to 13 to 14 um, And I think we'll get back to this when we talk about public health. When we think about... we we aren't individuals, we are a part of a community, mm-hmm. we're part of a society. So it may be the one offs when we add them together, they actually stress our healthcare system. Right. And so our COVID-19 effects are widespread. Mm-hmm. And they are impacting individual families um, to a great extent. And this is with us doing everything. So if you imagine if we weren't doing everything and, and one of the tragedies with COVID is that it is, it is taking people's businesses, it is harming relationships, there's mental health crises, and that's, that's us doing our best. Mm. So it's, you know, as a healthcare worker who, who really does get concerned about how somebody's liver is functioning and how their heart is functioning, I am very much aware of the mental health. Um, effects and the, I think what we're going to see is we will see those effects just start to climb as we come back out of this, yeah. um, and th- that's that that weighs heavily yeah. on us as healthcare workers. That draws our attention. What you just said at the end there about we're not just individuals, but the public health is a system, and I think that's why we're like I wonder. It'd be interesting to talk to a nurse who also you know, is a Jesus follower. And so thinks about these things. And so what for you, I mean, and you can only speak about your own connection here, but what is a connection between how you live out like an embodied faith? So it's not just what we think in our heads, but embodied out there in the world um, in regards to public health, like what are those connections for you? Could you fill that out a bit more? Yeah, sure. Why don't I start by defining public health? Yeah. So it's basically the organized efforts of society Hmm. to keep people healthy, to prevent illness and injury, and to limit or reduce premature death. That's basically what it is. And it's, it's basically just programs and policies and services that help us keep society healthy. Hmm. And when it's working, we don't notice it. Right. Yeah. And it's so it's really unusual right now that public health is lifted up as something. And we all seem really surprised when it actually when it's working well, we don't see it. So Mm. when you go to the restaurant and you order food, you assume that there haven't been mice feces in the food and that that restaurant is clean. Thank you, public health. You know, you Mm -hmm. don't tend to think about it. When you drink water out of the tap, Mm -hmm. and if you live in the city, you know, and you're not on a First Nations um, 
in a First Nations community, you will assume that you turn on the water and it will be clean. Right. You will yeah. assume that there's basic ways that we're going to keep our construction workers safe mm -hmm. because they're follow for their following guidelines set by public health. You will, um, I know when I was a child, my mom gave me little drops in my water and then pills to eat, uh, to swallow, to keep, to give me fluoride. And now we have fluoride, well, we had fluoride in our water and then it went out and now there's an argument to put it back. Um, we pasteurize our milk. Most of us don't know that there is a lot of diseases that you can get from pasteurizing milk. And so that would be all the ways that we work together we also will, um, there is a sense of surveilling for diseases that might be present. So where it's always being watched, but public health is, it's at a societal level and it's thinking big picture. So the lens is very far out. And anytime as a public health nurse, even though I might be concerned about you as an individual, I think of you within the bigger, broader system. Right. And so it's, it's just that kind of big lens that cares for everybody, but where it's most felt is where the most vulnerable are. And I think that's where we come to that embodied faith mm -hmm. that, I, you know, when I think as a believer, I know if you know you're going to please God, like if you really are like figuring out what the heart of God is, then you look to the most vulnerable, you look to the edges of society and you say, you know, that's where Jesus heart is. Mm -hmm. And that is actually part of how our society has worked together. Initially, public health was actually started by churches, just like hospitals were and public health was and um, mm -hmm. schools were run. Um, well and not, um, <laughs> by the church, um, public health was set in place because in our society, with those, I would say, somewhat Christian roots, we make the assumption that everybody is worth being cared for, that we are actually part of the community, and that we need to be alert to the ways that people can fall through um, kind of this social safety net that right. we have in place and having lived in Peru and Ecuador mm -hmm. um, where there wasn't a social safety net, mm -hmm. it, you really have to leave it to feel that loss and to realize that we, we have, we have this cushion that protects us. And um, you know, in our healthcare system in Canada, I would say we are all, um, we all get access to a Toyota Corolla. You know, we can't purchase you know, you can't go out and purchase a Mercedes or, or whatever. I'm a Lexus. I don't, I'm not a car person. Um, a Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> a Tesla. But, but, but all of us, everybody gets access to something that really works. Hmm. But public health, you know, that's maybe more what we think of in the hospital. But public health is where we work. It's where we learn. It's where we live. It's, it's actually where we worship. Hmm. Because even when you think of how many people can fit into um, your your church and like fire guidelines and all of that that's that's public health because we're caring about how we come together right yeah in real ways even you saying that puts everything I've heard from Dina Hinshaw in like 
a different light. Do you know what I mean? I'm hearing all of it, knowing that that's probably her, like that is how she is holding all of this in the like, this is for everyone. This is so that the whole system works together and that big systemic thinking, um, that's actually really yeah. fascinating. And it's usually we don't have to alert individuals. Like mm -hmm. usually we, the, how society works is it just kind of goes about its business and you might bump up against it on occasion, but you really don't because you're not at the margins and mm -hmm. we all live within a system that actually tends to work. Right. But that's because we're in an, like really a system where um, yeah, it does work, but at the margins is where you see public health. Now with COVID-19, that's what shocks people is that we have lived for a very long time without something like this happening. Mm -hmm. um, I heard somebody once said to me, well, I'm very, very concerned. You know, let's say Dr. Fauci. It was actually Dr. Fauci they were talking about. This has to be concerning because he knew this was coming. And I said, of course he did. That's his job. That's Dina Hinshaw's job is we know things like this can come. So we've been watching. We right. had SARS that came, you know, in early 2000s and it didn't really make its way so much to Calgary, but it took the lives of healthcare workers and people in the Toronto area. Yeah. We had um, another version of that that actually was in the Middle East and it never made its way here, but we're watching. Ebola was another infection, you know, very frightening infection that yeah. we watched to see if it was coming here. And so we were not surprised, but with COVID-19, there was the alert that this was going on and the healthcare, people within healthcare and in public health um, saw this brewing and saw this potential for coming, but knowing that alerting the public to something like COVID-19 is a very tricky business. Yeah, yeah there's, there's two things I wanna ask you about. One is, okay, we set up this public health system in, in like every aspect of life we have public health. I have to do these little videos and slideshows at the beginning of every school year about workplace safety and they're so boring. And I'm like, I have so much to do. It's beginning of the year, September. And I'm, okay, public health, thank you. You know, I'm not going to climb on top of a desk to put a poster on the wall. Okay. Um, this, these systems have been put in place. It's been operating really well. And now because it, really kind of grinds against our, the way we've been living, um, you know, with, you know, visiting people and, and all of that going to restaurants and, and, and some parts of the world have actually accommodated public health really well. They're like, yep, yeah, we're being told to do this. So we do it. And there's been not really any kind of voice against it, any kind of significant voice that I, and I mean, I tie that to this kind of disconnection to the community or disconnection from this view that actually we all live together and we all have to help each other. Where do you, can you tell me what's changed between the time when these public health measures were put in place and to why we have more of an individualistic um, independent society that really bucks against like, why should I pay for some 
someone in an ICU unit? Or why should I not host a party because I'm young and, you know, the odds are, eh, the odds are I'm not going to be affected. So, yeah, I think um, we have been healthy for a long time. So we forget that we are actually like a body, right? Like that we are, we are very interconnected. Um, I think we forget, you know, my, I have two aunts that died of um, tuberculosis, great aunts that died of tuberculosis. I think we forget that we actually have had a public health act since the 1800s that allowed the, our people like Dina Hinshaw to say, actually, you need to be quarantined and you mm -hmm. legally have to take medicine. So if you have tuberculosis, you can be ordered to take medicine. And if you don't, you can be put in jail. Most of us don't realize that we have infections that are mandatory for us to report. Just like if you have a suspicion of a child being um, right. you know, abused, treated, yeah. abused, mm -hmm. then you would you are legally responsible to yeah. report. Um, so that's kind of similar to um, how it works um, with us. I, I think you know when we have credit cards that we can rely on instead of our neighbor when we have technology that allows us to be separated. Um, you know, growing up, I knew all my neighbors and there was a sense of connectedness. We went to the school down the street um, and now we don't. Um, so I think we've just with maybe it's technology, maybe it's our ability to travel and move wherever we want. Um, I think we've, um, and I think we're influenced by technology or, you know, maybe television that is, um, promoted more of an individualistic perspective. I think we've forgotten, and this is reminding us that we are connected and we're responsible for our brothers. And that's like, as a, as a Christian, I think, you know, if I go back to the time of thinking about the early church where they cared for each other and they cared for the needs and they were, they were even organized to do so. I think back to Israel and there was a sense of, you know, people had their different roles and, and, mm -hmm. and some people like some people got to sing in the, you know, in the temple and, you know, they're not making food. So I, I would say that we, they, people brought, um, you know, sacrifices and part of it went to pay, you know, to give, feed the, the priests and, and the, the, the choir. And I think we've always had something like that. But when, when I'm in trouble, I can so much, I can be more self-reliant now. And I think this has taken that away a little bit and made us realize that, um, that we actually need each other <laughs> in ways that maybe we didn't realize before. Heather, you, you and I were talking earlier and I was re remarking on how the one thing that this pandemic has required from us is that we think like that we sacrifice like something, our personal freedom to do whatever, whenever. Um, although we're not, we weren't asked to sacrifice like eating. We could go get the food we needed. Like we had all of our essentials, but we were asked to sacrifice some of our choices for the sake of people we don't see, for the sake of bigger systemic things. And that, um, I don't want to be unfair to people because I, I know it's been hard and it's been hard across the board, but, but I found like, that's the lens I was looking at it. Like, this is the bottom, um, you know, the bottom of the pyramid is that we were asked to sacrifice for the sake yeah. of others. And most of us 
we said yes. And it's been long and it's been hard in lots of different ways. And then lots, it's also been revealing in good ways. Like there's been so much out of this year, but I'm just wondering, and I'm not sure if this is even the question to ask, but I find it. So well, I am going to ask this and we can, people can come back at me if you have comments, listeners, but who are the people that have had the most trouble with curtailing certain freedoms for the sake of other people in our culture? And I'm not like, is that unfair? What do you, you can come back at me. Cause I like I'm the question. Do you, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I assent. Statistically, we're finding that it's people who are the wealthiest, Mm. who have the most access to resources, and who, um, who have a belief system that promotes individualism and rights Mm. over responsibility. Um, And surprisingly, I, I, you know, I'm disappointedly if that's a word um it's actually been um christians who have been the most challenging and this is coming from public health mm-hmm. um and i have to say mo- many of our public health officials are actually jesus followers mm-hmm. are christians so it's been deeply disappointing um that we and that's not across the board we have churches who have been unbelievable and it is so encouraging and we need to tell their stories um but um a lot of the um kind of resistance um at least and maybe it's because i'm in this sphere of you know healthcare workers plus christian community um but where i hear it most Mm -hmm. um is actually within the christian community and i think you know i think there's a number of reasons for that um but i think that there is an eschatological uh, maybe stance of that, that I think is new. Mm. I think it's very recent um, that government is not safe, that, that, that there is maybe um, like, I think we live out our end times beliefs. I think we live out our views and yeah. we live out what we believe. And I think yeah. there is a tendency um, within certain pockets of Christianity to um, to put this within that context of end, you know, end times and the last days, and that this is part of a, a scheme to harm the church, um, and to see very much that this is this is an attack on Christians, and and I think that's because of social media and a bubble that gets formed that then then you know if we start searching things or people send us videos then we actually yeah. get more of the same There's um, more of a loop there yeah yeah so yeah. Uh, i have to i have to is it that many christians though it's noticeable by public health okay um that that are more most resistant both in the United States and in Canada okay. are white evangelical Christians. Okay. Um, that now in And I'm not United disagreeing States, with you. I yeah. just want to I just want to push back so that I can get a like a good clear firm answer there because uh, yeah. I mean there's there is like the media will go and hunt and give voice to you know kind of the 
most fringe. Yeah, the fringe as much as possible. And and yet, like on my Facebook feed, I have a ton of people who are anti-vaccine, anti-public uh, health orders, um, very much, you mentioned eschatological um, views about, you know, how the government is trying to persecute Christians right now. Um, like it's all over, I'm, but I kind of come from that zone too. So I'm like, well, maybe it's just my own little uh, subculture that I come from. Well, but if public if, health notices. Yeah. yeah, we do. And and if you like what part of 19 to 0 we actually look at what what's behind vaccine hesitancy. And our most um, our biggest reason for why people are hesitant is mistrust in government. Okay. Right. And because people think that public health and government are the same thing. They don't yeah. realize that Dina Hinshaw and the government are actually, although they must work together and yeah. they do work together, they are actually different. One is um, funded by the other, but that's about right, it. Right, yeah. right. And um, and they do work together. There are yeah, decisions sure. being made that are from our, our MLAs and yeah. uh, not necessarily from uh, our... And, and Dina Hinshaw is the face, but she's part yeah. of a larger system, right? Yeah. Um, but hmm. it's actually mistrust of government. Um, and I think that actually comes back to, um, honestly, to uh, the influence of the United States, because I think a lot of evangelical Christians are, are very well um, connected in with the United States. I used to live in Florida. So um, I remember living there for two years and I said to somebody once, you guys are still fighting Britain. And they said, what are you talking about? And I said, you're still, you're still fighting British control. You are bucking against the government and you think that they're going to take over. And I said, in Canada, we have a more, you know, a communal understanding of we care for you know, the, the bus driver's kid and the taxi driver's kid and the CEO both get the same access yeah. to healthcare, at least, um, and, and our basic services. And, and they were very, very surprised. Um, but I, I really do think that that goes back to that um, type of influence. And I would say in Alberta, we are the most American um, mm -hmm. province in Canada. If you went to Ontario, you might have a different um, yeah you know, understanding, well, but, um, I mean, and this is totally anecdotal and I don't want to dwell too long on it, but it's, oh, it's important. If we're talking about Christians and Christian faith and public health, we have to name this, but friends in Ontario are like one, two days ago, one lady was like, like all the mainland and evangelical churches in Ontario are all on the same board. Like they're all in the same place. Like, yep, we follow the rules and yes, it sucks and we'll get through it. Um, and then friends in the Maritimes are like, what? The government tells us to do something, we do it. And now they're done. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they can go and hang out with each other to a degree, yeah. right? But yeah. one friend was like, I don't understand why people aren't, like what, what problem people have with the health orders, like this guy from Halifax. And I was like, oh, fascinating. Just, I think it's very, we're very American. We're very influenced by the United States. I think we have an individualism um, that I think we don't see. I've lived in Newfoundland 
um, for a couple of years and very culturally different than here. Um, I think when you live away, you see it in a way that you don't when you are maybe always from here. Um, And I think our church has been deeply influenced. I mean, big C church because um, in Alberta has been deeply influenced by that. Um, And there is a, yeah, I think sometimes there is a lack of, of respect and trust, like trust is a big thing. And we trust, I go to, you know, I might be nervous going to the mechanic because I don't know that much about cars and I might be a little bit worried that they're going to take advantage of me, but I'm, I I know and trust, they know what they're doing with a car. When I go, you know, to other, you know, access other services, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm actually talking to somebody who's an expert in their field. And I think we are accustomed to trusting, um, you know, maybe our family doctor because we have a relationship with them. Um, Mm -hmm. And we trust our pastor because we have a relationship with them. And, um, you know, I certainly have people within my life, my, my very close circle who are um, really mistrusting about COVID and very mistrusting about the vaccine. And I said to them, you know, you know, my, this is even family members. And um, I said, you, you, when we go to give information about Jesus, so these are believers, I said, you, I would go to somebody who I know their life, I know how they live. And I would, I would put their life and their information together. And I would say they're trustworthy. I'm, I'll still be a Berean, and I'm still going to question, but I'm going to go to the Bible, I'm going to go to good sources, and I'm going to see their life. But yet, we, it, it's like I'm going to the dark web to find out information about Jesus. And there are, you know, there's very few ways to be right. And I don't mean right as in, you know, I like right, but as in to know Jesus, it's, there is a certain, there is a, there is things that are, that are accurate and things that aren't, there's truth and there's falsehood. And there's so many ways that we can be wrong. And here we are, it's like we're going to the dark web to find out people we don't know to trust that they're telling us about Jesus. We wouldn't do that. And in healthcare, it's like we have voices that of people that we know are family doctors and experts that we can see their life and see um, how they line up and how they're respected by their colleagues. But instead, we're going with people who are the odd voice that is um, kind of from darkness. And it's really, really discouraging. Um, mm. I, I just want to pick up on a couple things. You, you're, you have a lot to say, and it's very important stuff. I, I just want to comment on, on authority the distrust of authority and i i'm just going to suspect or believe that you read uh, the scandal of the evangelical mind like you said they're still fighting britain like the american church comes out of rebellion like they wanted they wanted to leave the church of england and the people who didn't want to be taxed anymore didn't want the king so they're like oh we'll join and so i mean it does go back to a rejection of authority And now we have someone on TV, someone on YouTube every day telling us what to do for the last 14 months. And we're like, yeah, stop telling us what to do. Um, Like just that 
that feeling towards authority. And even like as a teacher, I get my authority questioned, my professionalism questioned. I'm sure Jackie as a pastor, like you don't know what you're talking about. You know, it doesn't matter that you have a doctor, a master of divinity. Yeah. yeah. So like, it's, it's shocking to me that people are so unwilling to accept people's authority, not necessarily like as like an overlord over them, but just like, I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm talking about. Mm, yeah. And that, I think we always, hurts. we always, yes, we always, though, we need to have voices that speak out. So I never want to say we can't, because if I sure. look at, you know, in Canada this week, we found a residential school with 215 um, mm-hmm. children who were buried in a, in right. a mass grave. We yeah. had people who spoke out and needed to speak out. So yes. I never want to say we shouldn't have those voices, but we need to, they need to be put within context and say, do, are they telling us something that actually aligns with evidence? Yeah. Does it have a ring? And when well, and the motive, I, the motive and what too. is the motive behind yeah. them? And can we, can we take that into the light and look at it? When I think about, let's say we're going to talk about how we're, how we're caring for things with, related to COVID. If I take Jesus and I say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like if somebody's following Jesus? It, it, it means the least of these are on our mind. Those in the margins are on our hearts. It means that I'm caring for my brother and my sister. Mm-hmm. It means that I am, I love, that I am, you know, that I am tender. Mm. Those are all the attributes that we should have when, especially when we are in times of trouble. That's not what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I, as a, a believer who also happens to be in medicine and also love science, mm-hmm. I am, I see some of those attributes of caring for the other actually within our healthcare system. I see even exciting things going on on a world stage. So I'm going to tell you about the immunization, you know, vaccination, let's say. Mm -hmm. And one of our tricky parts of vaccination is we've probably all been vaccinated. So we have actually been so protected that we're like, we don't even know what we're getting protected against. Um, Having lived overseas and being able to see some of the diseases that you go, that's why we're vaccinated, right? Um, But from other when things COVID, besides COVID-19. Yeah, from other yeah. things those, other than those COVID-19. Vaccinations, yeah. yeah, like our usuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but when COVID-19 came about, um, for one, the, let's say, mRNA vaccine technology has actually been delivered, um, has been um, under development for, actually, it looks like up to 60 years, but really wow. within the last 30 years. So this is mm-hmm. nothing new that they have been working on. And actually even we're very close to having a vaccination for, for the Middle Eastern version of, of, of the coronavirus called MERS, right? Um, and so, um, but all of these pharmaceutical companies and uh, turned their heads in towards each other. So usually if you're going to create some technology, you're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna right. kind of turn away and I'm gonna keep all yeah, this information yeah. to myself. But what they did is they actually opened up they're learning to others. Mm. So that different, that's why we can have two vaccines like Moderna and, 
and Pfizer that are so similar. They're actually the Coke and Pepsi. You know, they're like Coke and Pepsi. You're going to probably have a preference, but it's going to be meaningless if we actually had a blind taste test. But <laughs> so, but they actually were sharing information. Right. And um, the U.S. government uh, led, uh, led actually by Francis Collins, who is the head of the NIH, who happens to also be an evangelical Christian. Um, they were working together and sharing information so they could learn and pool their resources. And, and scientists worked probably 16, 18 hours a day. They were so focused on getting us an immune, a vaccine that worked. Right. So they worked and worked and worked. And 11 months in, we had one that we could go ahead and move forward on. Um, I think we would have been really, really pleased if we had one with an efficacy, which means your, you know, kind of how much protection it is at about 70%. We would have been really, really happy because that's kind of the best our influenza vaccine ever is. Mm -hmm. um, and when something is that good, it doesn't mean it doesn't work the 30% of the time. It just means you're, you're, you're still going to get sick, but you're going to get way less sick. Mm -hmm. um, and 70% of the time, you're not going to get sick at all, which is amazing. So we would have been really pleased with that. With our mRNA vaccines, we're at about 95%, mm -hmm. which is like, yeah. it's absolutely incredible. And as Francis Collins says, like, when he helped to uh, map the human genome and announced that back when Clinton was in office, he actually led a worship song. Mm. when he was doing the announcement because it was it was he was so in awe with what like god's creative power right and I, I, this is a similar response it's like this is incredible this is this is awesome when you see these minds come together and share then what they did is they took the data from our testing so when we do different phases usually there's not a lot of infection out there so let's say when we when we made the um shingles vaccine well there's not a lot of like there you're not going to get shingles really very often anyway right. so if we give people a vaccine we have to see did they get the actual infection so you actually have to find a lot of people to try to say hey i know you're probably never going to get shingles and you're probably never cross your mind but you're over 50 can we give this to you? And then we're just gonna have to wait a really long time to see if you actually get it. Right. So yeah. that's right. the tricky part. The great thing with COVID, bad thing with COVID is that we have these waves of tons and tons of people. We have a lot of infection within our communities and we had a lot of people who were very, very willing to sign up. Yeah. So, and mm -hmm. we had usually between the phases, you have what's called red tape. Mm. And that's a lot of having to uh, fight wait, hope that you have money, and all of those things were taken out. So we didn't cut corners, we cut red tape. Mm -hmm. And so now you can actually, and because they took all of this data from all of the phases and turned the information out to the public so that all scientists could look and scrutinize the data. And so we did our you know, first three phases and then now it's starting to roll out to public when, as a public health person, when I hear things like a pause, you know, people will say, oh, you know, the vaccine is, is out and they just said there's a pause. For me, that actually makes me feel really more comfortable mm -hmm. because what they're doing is they're actually looking at all of the worldwide data. 
which is bigger numbers than we have ever used in a drug trial, right? right. Yeah. And they're saying, we think we might see something in the data. Right. We're watching. So we're, we're watching, we think we might see a trend, let's call it, let's pause, let's see if what we're seeing is what we're seeing. No, we're good. So anytime you have any medication, there's always a small amount of risk. So we take that and we say, yes, okay, that's just how it works. Mm-hmm. It's, it's risky to eat food. It's risky to um, drive your car. It's mm-hmm. risky to take any medication. Um, there is always, but we want to make sure that our benefit significantly outweighs our risk because why right. would we be doing what we're doing? Um, so we weigh that. Um, and so we, sometimes we've had to pause to say, what are we seeing? Is this serious or not? Um, and I think what has happened is there is a tendency for people to say, because they've opened up the data, we get so many eyes on it, which is wonderful, but then we get a lot of untrained eyes Hmm. because they took the vaccine and they said, look, you can see what's in it. You can see how we produced it. And then you get a lot of people who have, you know, half truths and will spin it with an agenda to bring about fear. And I get you know, I probably spend two hours a day easily talking about the vaccine with individuals. I probably get a, a load of emails of people with videos that are half truths and twisted and dark and, mm. you know, taking things that are, and, and, and not understanding how public health works. And it's, yeah, it's discouraging. When you talk about the process of the vaccines, it's such an embodied process that seems to be like so much of our culture is fragmented. And like you were saying, the, the pharmaceutical companies usually, you know, hoard to themselves and keep the information secret and they're trying to compete and trying to get the edge. In this case, everybody opened up to one another, worked together, shared this like back and forth. And that's what made it happen fast. It's fascinating, like the actual, when things actually work in an embodied, may I say godly way, (laughs) they work well. And then even that, the, the pause you talk about, like, it's like listening. So what, you know, I'm listening to what my brain is listening to what my hand is saying, because it's in pain. Okay. We're going to evaluate. It's like the working of a body is doing its job when we're doing these things. I love, it was I loved what you said about the guy who led the worship service, um, because that is when you were talking about the development of that vaccine, it was beautiful. And um, I don't know, I just, you get excited when you hear about how all of that works together. It's fascinating. You were just saying you ended on like, and it's discouraging because it's fascinating how when things work well, we don't know what to do with it. Like we're like, that can't possibly be right. <laughs> like right, and and it's exciting. Like um, Moderna, the lead scientist is a black woman in the United mm-hmm. States. The lead scientist on Pfizer is vaccine is a woman in Germany who worked closely with uh, University of Ontario scientists. Like they were working and collaborating and sharing AstraZeneca. Um, they weren't making money off of that vaccine. They were keeping it at cost, which right. is really amazing so that our vaccines can make it out to, um, you know, more vulnerable populations. 
So, and we're learning as we go, like, yes, there is an element. That's actually how science works is really, uh, there's a couple of analogies that I think work so well with this. Um, Sometimes people will be really frustrated when they um, see maybe public health guidelines, you know, changing, or they'll be, oh, well, they paused or whatever. And, and um, I'm going to credit my brother, because he's pretty, actually pretty smart. And, and, um, but he, he said, people must hate watching hockey. And I said, what what are you talking about? He goes, because the coach doesn't come out with a plan at the very beginning of the game and stick to it. He's like, Oh, look, there's a power play. I'm going to send out a team and then I'm going to call them back. And I'm going to, I'm going to make judgments as I go. I'm going to listen. I'm going to watch. I'm going to see what the other team is providing us. And I'm going to make judgments based on that. And I'm Mm -hmm. going to consult with the people around me and I'm going to be encouraged by the, you know, the crowd or discouraged by my guys. And so that must just make people so frustrated. It's like, no, well, we understand that's how, that's how that works. Well, that's actually how science works too. We, at the beginning, we thought we we were just getting to know COVID. We actually didn't know. I remember hearing back in December that there was a virus that looked really scary. It was in, you know, it had just hit Iran and we heard about mass graves. And so we knew that there was something that was coming. And so, you know, I actually moved my classes online because um, I, I was like, I think in January we're going to be going online. But, you know, usually these things don't happen. So kind of listening to what I was hearing overseas and from other public health officials. Um, but we didn't know what we were getting. We didn't know how it was transmitted. We didn't know the masks were important. But, you know, we went from don't mask to mask. And that that decreased trust, right? Mm-hmm. And it it made people afraid. And I think people were rightly afraid, um, but they didn't realize that our society actually works. We will have toilet paper, you know, like we will, we will have enough food and we can take what we need. And, you know, I think of manna, you know, like here, here's people hoarding and it's like, no, we're going to, let's trust. Let's actually be okay. Let's (laughs) make sure everybody gets some or else it's going to rot. Like how much does us have a lot of rice in our basement, right? Or too much toilet paper. Um, (laughs) The other analogy that I think of when it comes to vaccines, which I really love, is the game Red Rover. Did you ever play Red Rover as a kid? Yeah. So, you know, everybody holds hands and and somebody's coming running at you and they're going to try to break through the line and it hurts when they hit, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I actually don't really like playing that game. But if you imagine, like, uh, somebody on your team is like, I'm really strong. Like, kind of burly guys like I'm really strong I don't need I don't want to hold hands because I can stop this person who's going through yeah and I don't need to and then somebody else maybe a child beside them really needs the strength of that person Mm -hmm. and by immunizing by vaccinating we're actually linking hands in a red rover game Mm. now at times we've had available vaccines of different efficacies or kind of how well they work but let's say we've got that burly guy who's really strong and healthy and young you know what to get to where they're really safe and healthy in a COVID environment they actually probably just need a bit of a boost when we have natural immunity to COVID let's say you get the actual infection of COVID you actually don't get immunity that's as good as the vaccine Right. And it doesn't last as long. And so 
we want that person to get some boost. But if we have people who are more vulnerable, maybe are pregnant women or, or a child or, you know, an older child or an elderly person, then they need more. So let's give them the vaccines that we have available to us that give us more. But by all of us linking, we're actually, I'm protecting the person beside me as well as myself. Mm. And um, we, we hear stories in the news, you know, of, of people who, you know, will say, I didn't know that COVID was such a big deal. I was told it wasn't that bad. Um, and now they have two family members who've died. Um, and they come back really feeling quite, we'd say repentant or, or ashamed maybe, um, and sorry for their behaviors. Um, but we see a lot of people who are kind of just think that they're invincible. And we know with our new variants of concern um, that younger people are getting really sick um, or they're not getting really sick, but they're still getting those lasting um, impacts. And we're not able to, at the very beginning, we thought, oh, just elderly people are, are, are dying. And, and that's almost still true. It's not completely true anymore, but that tends to be, but that's not necessarily what's happening as far as lasting results. And I think our healthcare system is going to be um, stressed by the ongoing impacts of long COVID and some of the health effects. And that's, that's really heartbreaking, but vaccinations are meant to save people's lives and to limit the impact on our healthcare system. That's why, that's why we do them. They're not necessarily, um, are we gonna have it where nobody else gets COVID, right. but you're going to have a less version of significantly less version, mm -hmm. um, less intense version of, of the illness. I, I have one question that kind of leads in a different way. So I wanted to see if Zach had any follow-up questions. I have four. Okay. <laughs> I you thought we wouldn't have anything to talk about. This is great. Really? Oh my goodness. No, this is great. Uh, this mm -hmm. opens up so many um, really big questions, really big conversations, I think. Um, so I'm going to ask all four and you can answer whatever you want. So healthy for a long time, uh, you mentioned that early on, like there's a reason why people are kind of taken aback by all of a sudden these, these new public health orders, because we've been healthy for a long time because of public health. <laughs> and is it natural then that we need these recurring nightmare situations to kind of reset or just kind of like, oh, like, yes, we do need to fund this center for disease control and we do need to fund, you know, workplace safety. And we do need to take a look at this legislation to protect these vulnerable people in society. So I'm wondering if we do need these like horrible accidents or horrible diseases or something just to kind of roll through every once in a while, just to remind us, um, because yeah, we haven't seen polio in Alberta since when, right? I lived in Guatemala. I saw lots of people who had, you know, the effects of polio. And I'm like, oh man, yeah. I remember seeing that as a kid. I remember there was that one old person who had polio. Um, so that's one question. Another question is just about suffering. And because we don't suffer, I mean, and I'm speaking as someone who hasn't suffered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a privileged, healthy, middle-aged man. Um, so I'm just wondering about when we suffer 
then we can actually empathize and participate and, and maybe accept a little bit of authority. It's difficult to challenge your doctor when you're, you know, in a hospital bed and hooked up to a respirator. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's my second question. How important is suffering when actually considering supporting and accepting public health orders? Third question, communication. How then do we communicate to those people who seem to be deaf and blind to reality? And then the last one is just discouragement. How do public health workers um, not just completely collapse when they are just faced with folly and um, distrust and accusations that they are part of a cabal trying to, you know, take away their children and their faith and end the world and that they all worship Satan. Uh, how do you, as public health workers, uh, maintain your courage? Uh, great question. So I would say healthy for a long time. Do we need those things? I think there's lots of different ways we're, we're reminded that we need to keep systems up. I think in Canada, we actually do quite a good job. And so across the board, I would say, I think we actually, like we keep our road systems up and we don't have bridges that collapse. Right. You know, having lived in the United States, there's bridges there that haven't, because people don't want to pay taxes, right? And so you will see bridges that are breaking down and, and collapsing. Um, I think you see that elsewhere in the world as well. Right. I think we do a pretty good job. Um, we don't expect something like this to happen except every hundred years. Like if you look back to the Spanish flu, why that came here is because of the World War I um, vets who came Migration. back and they brought it back. Yeah. They, yeah, they brought it back. And we had so many people who died. Um, you know, one of the biggest battles um, for, you know, during World War I, we had far more soldiers die than the worst battle ever. Significantly more died of of influenza at that point. So um, I want to say no, that we don't need it, but I think, you know, it, it leads into your suffering. I think when we have individual suffering or community suffering, it, it actually is that difficult gift that helps us to see others, mm -hmm. um, helps us to see um, God in a different way. Um, and it makes, I think it can tenderize us to make our hearts more tender um, and see that we are actually able to fall and that we are not just individual. Like, I think that individualism is actually not relying on God. I think it, I think when you rely on God, you actually see your connectedness to others, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think he can, I don't think, I think God can use that to help us to see others and see our interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. Um I like the language of like, I think, cause I, I'm always concer not concerned. I like the language of using, I, God can use that as opposed to God does that to us. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. I think totally. it's going to yeah. happen. And I think God, of course can like, and I want like draw us into a um, more healing, like internally and externally through those things. Um, the other thought I just had about that as you were speaking was, I wonder if that's not why Jesus was like, like the kingdom belongs to these people, the brokenhearted, the poor in spirit, 
those who mourn, like those who are going through the stuff, because A, they have nothing left. They get it. They get that we're connected. They get that they are brought close. They get that they are forgiven. Like they get kind of those existential things a little bit more. And then would that not be why Jesus is like, like align with them, like go to where they are. What you do for them is what you do for me. Like you need to be there because that's how you're going to get it. I don't know. Like, yeah. this is what I'm thinking a little bit more. And I think that we, we see scripture through the lens of our culture and we see things and we miss things, which is why it's such a gift to have brothers and sisters from other parts of the world and other socioeconomic status, you know, that they see, I always think of the gospel as like a, as a, as a circle and that, um, that people can see the other side that I can't see. And they're from different social location or um, different experiences. And I get to see what I get to see. And so let me tell people what I see, but yeah. with the humility to understand that I don't see everything and I'm not supposed to be able to see everything. We have to come together and say, but this is what I see, but this is what I see. And this is how I've experienced it. And that's again, part of our need to be connected to each other. Right. Yeah. Um, I work closely with Dr. Cora Constantinescu, who's one of the vaccine hesitancy physicians, a pediatric infectious disease physician who specializes in vaccine hesitancy. And so I get to hear how she has conversations with people. Um, and it's a tendency to start with the positive and making assumptions that are positive about somebody and then list, telling, telling them your story so, hey, I'm going to get the vaccine or I got the vaccine. And um, hey, when are you going to get it? Like kind of really positive. And then when people maybe are, are hesitant or, you know, then it's listening to what it is that concerns them without making the assumption that we know what that is. Um, and then seeing if we can address that concern um, I think is really actually important. And then recognizing that sometimes we can shift people, but we're probably not gonna change their minds. If I talk, you know, I have conversations on social media all the time, Jackie can um, attest to that. Yeah. And I will have people who will get really, really angry because um, the, the conversations that I, I won't have on, on social media because of just the fact that they're nuanced conversations, I will post things, they react, I say, let's have a conversation, I'll have an hour long conversation. And I always say, I will not try to convince you to have, take the vaccine, but I do want you to make the decision based on good information. So if you're going to say no, I want it to be based on the truth, on yeah. the most accurate information. And then you can say no, or you can say yes. But I will tell you, what if what you're saying is accurate or not like for example the vaccine does not change your dna it's impossible for it to happen so i can explain that and and demonstrate that or send them a video on that um so i'm like that's not a reason also you know from a pro-life stance people will sometimes get really nervous while well, our mrna vaccines have you know obviously there's no fetal tissue nor has there um, the AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson were actually developed on a cell line, fetal cell line from, from a uh, likely an abortion. We aren't sure if it was a miscarriage or an abortion because medically they're actually named the exact same thing. 
um, that was back in kind of the 60s and 70s. And we've used that same cell line, which is basically just cells that were related to that, um, that one cell back way back. Um, and we've used it throughout all of this generation of science and medical right. science, and we know it and we have studied it. So there's no need for us to get more. So there's no new abortions or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue actually that taking the vaccine is as pro-life as you can get because you're protecting everybody. Um, but I, I just arranged for a bunch of nurses and physicians who are pregnant who got the vaccine while pregnant to make videos saying, hi, my name is Heather. I'm a registered nurse and I, I got the vaccine when I was pregnant or I, I just got it and this is why I got it. Because it really matters when we share our stories yeah. about feeling confident. Um, I know it matters to me when I see other people who you know, I really respect um, and I think it makes a difference when we see. So that's why I really encourage people to share their stories and go on social media and share because it raises the confidence because they're like, whoa, yeah. he's really smart. And he mm -hmm. got it. All right. Um, and then for the people who are really not going to see, you know, the many, many, many um, emails I get, you know, during every day with kind of the videos that are promoting, I would say what is darkness and not truth. Um, I just, I, I, I know they're not going to change their minds. I'm not going to change their mind at this point. And so I just ask that they stop because it's so discouraging. That leads into that whole discouragement thing. It's exhausting. Mm. This has been an, ex it's been exhausting for everybody. Um, but for medical people, um, it has been particularly, it's been scary. My husband and I both reviewed our wills when COVID hit, because we weren't sure that we were both going to make it through. Um, we, wow. um, and my son is a nurse. So having, you know, three of us who work, he works with COVID patients. So um, having that fear, I, I can say when we each got the vaccine, it was like this weight came off of our shoulders and we were so thrilled um, and um, pleased by just the protection that it gives us. Um, yeah, it's, I, and I've shared with them, look, what you're sharing with me is really discouraging and it is nothing to do with Jesus because you're making me exhausted and discouraged. And so I'm just going to ask that you stop, um, you know, yeah. for people who are sending things like that, but we're, 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 we're exhausted. Um, I have, because within healthcare groups, we can talk because, you know, we understand and, you know, we don't have to worry. We obviously keep things confidential, but um, I have ICU nurses who call me regularly crying in tears. We, we can't have a conversation without crying um, because of the shared suffering of what we see. Um, and yeah, it's, it, these are dark, these are still pretty dark days and it's a little frightening when we think of, you know, stampede and all of that reopening. Um, I hope it's not too early, but I just, I'm really hopeful that we're going to get enough people to get that first dose at least. Yeah. And then we have the protection, uh, the starting protection to yeah. uh, be able to get us out of this. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yes. May it be so. Um, oh, yeah. But I'm also very, very willing to talk to pretty much anybody. So if somebody is wanting to have a conversation where they're actually wanting to have good information, I am more than happy to talk to people. Um, I am... A, 
I, I'm even okay if they choose not to. I just want people to have good information. I think these vaccines are absolutely like, they just make me smile. They're, they're so incredible how the science works. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's I'm really one of my happy favorite, to share that. That's one of my favorite things over the last year is just the story of the vaccine. Mm. It's, it's so incredible. Like turn off our podcast and go listen to, go find some stories uh, about interviews with these scientists. It's, it's so incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and hopeful and encouraging, right? Yes. And this is like, this is God's work. Like sometimes we assume within, you know, I was, I wasn't raised in the church, but became a Christian in high school and became involved in quite a, I would say a fundamentalist church that believed that the gospel is about salvation only by like, you've got a ticket to get into heaven, not that God is at work in this world. And we didn't talk about the poor and we didn't talk about the vulnerable. We talked about, you know, to our heads and an ascent and a checklist. And yes, we talked about Jesus all the time, which is great. And I do know my Bible really well. But there was, there were, the kingdom was never talked about. We were missing big sections of living this out, that incarnational life, right? Mm -hmm. And if we look at the checklists of what, you know, I'm just going to, is it Galatians, where they were having this big conversation and, and Paul comes and they're, they're, you know, he's like, he had waited 14 years before he went before the apostles and they're having this big discussion and they're like, Oh, well, you know, the most important things, as long as you're really caring about the poor, we're good. You know, there's like two <laughs> or three things. Like it really wasn't that much. And, mm-hmm. and these are our poor. This is our vulnerable. Our BIPOC communities are getting hammered by COVID. One of, I work in indigenous health. Um, we've lost elders who were some of the only um, what, some of the few um, fluent Blackfoot speakers. Right. They're gone because of COVID. Yeah. Pre-vaccine. You know, we got them all vaccinated as soon as we could, our, our Indigenous population. And they're offering it to everyone. And they're offering it to everybody else. It's amazing. Yeah. So right. I, <laughs> I love that you rooted everything in story, uh, especially on how to communicate the, these difficult like ideas like, no, here, this isn't a course you have to take or a, a pamphlet you have to read with 19 pages in it. Um, like, I'm just going to tell you a story. And I, I mean, that's also following Jesus. Like following Jesus is living out a story and sharing a story um, and participating in other people's stories. And that's, that's life-giving and that is encouraging and that is co-suffering and like all everything kind of comes together in story and if we stop rooting it in those stories if we become insular one our story becomes very boring and dull and really not worth telling um it is important to honor the stories and the culture and the ways of knowing like all the embodied things about a person you know, and in this case, an indigenous person, whoever you're working with um, for their whole health. And I, again, like thinking about public health as the whole health, the whole system working together right to the very margin so we can do this 
we can live well together. And I, I don't know if there's a question in here, but I have just been thinking about the, I don't know, dead importance of acknowledging our, like people's full humanity in healthcare, their full enculturedness in healthcare, not just limiting it to, you know, just one, I don't know, metric of human, their humanness. And I see that in your work. I don't know. Can you speak to that? Is that a good? Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely can. So a couple of things. I think it's as dangerous as when we look at one number with COVID and say only one to, you know, 2% of people die. We miss the whole story and we miss the impact and we miss some of the excitement and the beauty as well. When we look at people's health and in particular with indigenous people, let's say, it's so easy, especially if we've maybe seen things that are troubling. We look at communities and we say, look, there's no water, clean water. There's lots of maybe corruption. There's things like, or that's the lens that we bring, right? right? But what we miss are a couple of things. The beauty of culture, the, like, I have never seen more Jesus-like culture than I have when I've worked in indigenous communities. Like it puts me to shame in the best ways you know, family, um, if somebody, if you own a car and somebody says you, they need it, you're, you're with joy obligated to give it, you know, it makes it really complicated and messy, but it's like, I've, and so I think from a public health perspective, from a more of maybe a community health perspective, we always say, come with a strength-based lens. So we say, what are the strengths that I can meet you where you are strong so that we can use those strengths to address those things that aren't going well. Mm-hmm. What I do with the anti-racism in particular, and with what I do in my classes and in my research is troubling where the problem is. Mm-hmm. So often we look maybe at a first nations community and we see things that are dysfunctional, but where is the one that causes us to miss the strengths and the beauty and what is really good that is there that we can learn from and be, um, and yeah, basically we can learn from, but it, we fail to trouble where the problem is hmm. and we fail to see the systemic nature of things, which is colonialism. Hmm. We fail to see that things are structured in a way for some people to succeed and others not to. Hmm. And our relationship as a nation with indigenous people is structured so that it is far more difficult to thrive, which makes the strength and the resilience and the tenacity to be all the more impressive. But there is an indigenous concept that I think is also important to bring. And I'm careful not to ever teach that, which isn't for me, but I think we can see this idea is seven generations. When we look back seven generations, we see where we've come from. And often in particular in the church, I know I attended a church once where there, we were still benefiting from the investment of people who are long gone because they put their money and their time and their energy. They taught people, they taught Sunday school, they built buildings, they, and so we benefit from the seven generations behind us Mm. and those stories that have brought us here. But we have a responsibility for the seven generations in front of us. Mm -hmm. So the not yet born. Right. So that would be, if you were going to, if you were saying to yourself, should I get vaccinated? Well, I have told you the risk to pregnant women, that is our next generation. Right. So our next seven generations, that's what we do now matters. So I think we can learn from that. Um, yeah. I think it's really important that we, 
that we think beyond ourselves that we are and 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 that we if jesus calls us to lay down our life if jesus calls us to lay down our life this is not laying down our life this is just actually the most pro-life wonderful thing that we can do but i can actually care for my neighbor by vaccinating and care for the most vulnerable because we know that our indigenous brothers and sisters in particular are most deeply impacted by things like COVID-19, our homeless population or people living who are street involved, I should say. Um, and, you know, our, our, and our elderly who, if we were learning from an indigenous culture, we would know that's who we should honor and not feel that we can discard. Recording today has been done online from our homes. Music graciously provided by Jennifer Oikawa. Check out Escape Plan to Canada by the Jen Oikawa Trio. One thing we'd like to develop more of is a conversation with our listeners. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, find us on Instagram at the Podcast Made Flesh, no spaces, or on Facebook. Like our page and follow us. Get all our updates. 